The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. George V is a warrior. He's not a confident man. He does suffer from anxiety. And yet every time he left the palace in World War One, he had to present this front of confidence, this attitude that if we all just stick together, we're going to win because everybody's looking to people like him for confirmation that is this going to be all right. That was Alexandra Churchill on the anxieties of King George V. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the author and historian Alexandra Churchill, whose latest book is In the Eye of the Storm, George V and the Great War. And that was the subject of her interview with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning. Their conversation took place at our Winchester History Weekend last year, where Alexandra was one of the speakers on the lineup. Here's how their discussion went. I'm here at our annual Winchester History Weekend with Alexandra Churchill, who is here to give a talk about George V and the making of the House of Windsor. So welcome, Alexandra. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, So you're about to publish a biography of King George V, which I had the pleasure of having a sneak preview of this week. (laughs) So to start this podcast, um, why George V? Why did you want to write a biography about him? I think it's just the first book that the Queen's given the nod to about him in 34 years. So he hasn't been written up since the early 80s. And uh, as a war historian, I'd done books on um, like the soldiers' experiences and politicians' experiences and even like a football club's experiences of the war. And for me, it was it was a totally outlandish ask. I never expected to get permission, but it just to do a really unique experience of the war. So it's a biography of George V, but just for five years during World War One. So a normal biography of him has got about 40 pages dedicated to World War One, and it doesn't even begin to cover what he did. So I wanted to do a whole book just dedicated to that short period. How do we tend to remember George V today? Do you think we've, that history's been unkind to him or do you, think, do you think he's remembered as he should be? I think history's apathetic, really. I don't think anyone really knows. I do, you'll see it at the talk later. The first thing I do is ask the audience to shout out what they know about him. And you get um, stamps and someone will shout bugger bogner. Um, and that's about it. And I'll mean to his kids is another one. And uh, I didn't really know anything more than that either when I started. And the first day that they gave me his diaries to look at, I just was praying that he didn't turn out to be horrible and that I'd have to spend the next three years writing about him and not like him. 
but he absolutely like I just kept finding a mass of evidence that completely contradicted most of what you read about him. So yeah, give us some examples of, of so what you found. Horrible to his kids, no. I mean, anyone, any basic historian would like delve a bit deeper into that and realise that the only the person that gave all that testimony is Edward VIII. And fifty years after the fact, after he's abdicated, after he's got the hump about how much money he got in his settlement, of course he didn't have nice things to say. And actually, if you go back to his autobiography, he actually says, "I had quite an, quite an idyllic idyllic childhood." Actually, and it's just it just even the, the parent thing, um, the assumption that he was stupid because he absolutely wasn't. Um, he wasn't trained to be a king, but he was not a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination. So just, and even Queen Mary, this assumption that she's uh, really cold and Germanic and it's like the best insult you can throw at her and that she didn't like the children very much either. Um, it's absolute rubbish. You sort of touched in your answer then on he was the, the idea that George wasn't supposed to be king, of course. Mm. Um, he became the heir after the death of his older brother um, in 1892. His He was in the Navy until this point and he had to leave his mm. career and he had to then marry his older brother's fiancée, um, Princess Mary. Um, so it's not, it wasn't being king, wasn't a role he envisaged for himself. Nor one he wanted, but... Um... God help us if that hadn't have happened because his elder brother, um, I don't think there'd be a monarchy now. I don't, I'm not trying wow. to, um, his elder brother was, just, everyone just describes him as listless and a bit wet and easily misled. Um, just not really, no matter what, they, I mean, they used George as a crutch for him their whole childhoods to try and sort of G him up and get some life into him. But he was, he wasn't, I don't, he definitely wasn't kingly material. And I dread to think what would have happened in World War One if poor Eddie had been on the throne. So it's funny that George was in no way prepared because he was wholly more qualified to do it than his elder brother was, even though his brother had been sort of put through royal boot camp and and treated as the heir, I think it would have been an absolute disaster. So in what way was George prepared, do you think? Um, so when his brother died in 1892, they, they did start sort of drilling him on the constitution. And he still had, at that point, nine years till Queen Victoria died, and then a further nine years till his father died. So there were quite a number of years in which to get him in on, I mean, he sat on some government committees. One of them was about um, su uh, supplying the civilian population of Britain with food in wartime, ironically. Um, so he, he was schooled. Um, he hadn't had any, and it was a bugbear of Queen Victoria's that he and his brother hadn't been um, schooled in foreign languages at all and you know that it's easier to learn the younger you are and by the time he's in the navy and they're sending him off to Germany to try and learn German and he's just he's, he hates it he just wants to be shooting he just doesn't get on with it but um, what I did find was that although that people make a lot of this he, he could converse basically in French he was conversing with people at the front in French and actually um, some, someone else is writing a book about him and we had a discussion about the difference between George V and his father and She's already written a book about his father. Her name's Jane Ridley. And she said if Bertie, Edward VII, was EU, then George would be Brexit. All of the attention his father puts into Europe and France and the continent, George puts into the empire. And what I found, that he was prolific enough in Hindustani. I mean, he still had an interpreter with him in case people started to babble, but he could ask after Indian soldiers in their own languages, um, 
and check on their well-being, which they really appreciated. So it's kind of overdone how bad he was. He wasn't good at German at all, but it's a little bit overdone how bad he was at foreign languages. He obviously had a lot long time to prepare to be king. Um, but how did he feel behind closed doors? I think like in the book, you sort of make reference to the fact that he was a warrior. He's just so pragmatic. He just, he is, he's... Um, He's a beast when he gets the bit between his teeth that he has to do something. There's a, a ship's log or a document that he wrote in in 1891, so before Eddie died, or it might have been just after actually, where he wrote um, a message in a guest book or something. It said, the secret of life is not to do what one loves, but to love what one has to do. And I think he lived by that maxim. His, he was very pragmatic. His attitude was, no, I didn't want this. Yes, I find aspects of it ter- terrifying. Um, I'm rubbish at public speaking. I can't waffle away with the likes of Asquith. He's a classicist and, and I don't have that schooling. Um, but this is my job and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And interestingly, what I found is that the rift that isn't really opening, but you can see where it came from in World War One between himself and Edward VIII, the Prince mm-hmm. of Wales, um, is that his son doesn't have that pragmatism. He doesn't want it and he just fights against it, which is where they start after the war. They start to diverge and they just can't see each other's point of view because George V's attitude is, well, you just suck it up. This is the job you've got. Learn to love it. So he, he lived by that maxim, definitely. It's got like that classic British stiff upper lip. Yeah, which is why, ironically, you didn't need the likes of Edward VII. You didn't need glitterati and and a social world in World War One. You just needed a simple man. And by simple, I've said in the book, I don't mean intellect-wise. I mean simple as in straightforward to just do his job with no bells, no whistles, and just work hard because that's what you were asking your people to do. And they responded really well to it. So from people not knowing him very well in 1914, um, he's, he's already started a bit to sort of break the ice with people. He gets on much better with the working classes and the middle classes than he does with his own class, um, apart from some very particular friends. Um, and he, he's quite happy to go and mix with people and talk to them on their level. And there's never sort of any hint of snobbery either, um, which people really begin to respect as the war goes on, because it's like he's in it with them. I mean, Winston... Churchill said (laughs) (laughs) that George was head and front of the whole war effort. Yeah. Um, So would you agree with that statement? I don't even think he's sucking up. I think to a large extent, I know Churchill's great for a quote and and great for some brown nosing, but I I honestly thought he believed that because if you consider that George V is a warrior, he's not a confident man. um, He does suffer from anxiety. And yet every time he left the palace in World War I, he had to present this front of confidence, this attitude, that if we all just stick together, we're going to win because everybody's looking to people like him for confirmation that is this going to be all right? And especially after Kitchener dies, because he could take a bit of a backseat in the first two years of the war and just go about his business quietly without any PR because he had Kitchener. But then when Kitchener dies, it all falls on him. And actually he does it really, really well. And he assumes that mantle and, and it's all tied in with the growth of PR, the introduction of the press office at the Royal Palaces. Um, and he does it really well. But the idea that he was doing it for PR's sake really disgusted him. I think um, the Prince of Wales once says to him something like, oh, that will be good propaganda. And he says, I do things because they're right, not because they're good propaganda. So um, I just, I think he was just a, a plain, like they call him the Squire of Sandringham because he's just, they say he's just like a country gentleman. And I think to a large extent he was. Um, 
He was a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. Um, but most importantly, people could see that everything he was asking them to do in the war, he was doing himself as well, which I think they respected. And so if he asked for something, if he did a proclamation about uh, rationing or recruitment, people weren't as annoyed by him asking as they were by the government, who was seen as quite sort of dilatory in parts of the war. Wasn't one rule for them, one rule for me kind of Well, leadership. yeah, I, like Asquith, was, there's someone said to him, well, why don't you give up your salary? And he said, well, no, no way. I yeah. mean, to keep it, every penny of it. Um, and George V, on the other hand, was giving £100,000 in private funds to to the war effort, which the government didn't deal with well. I think it would have been it would have been better for the king and for the government if they'd gone and bought a Zeppelin with it. Um, but they didn't. It just got absorbed into the nation's funds. And it was was seen as something that could have really set an example for the country and that the government could have reaped the reward from and the king and they they stuffed it up. Um, but yeah, they, there were comments about them riding to meetings in cars and obviously the king just transferred over mostly to a horse and cart during the war. The cars were either loaned out um, or just to take the wounded for drives or they were just locked up for the duration of the war. So there's certain, there's a marked difference between the king suffering the hardships of his people quite publicly and without complaint publicly. Well, not really much complaint in private either because he thought he was doing the right thing and the government's all preaching one thing and doing another. What in real terms was his role during the war? In, do, do you know what I'm getting at? I do. <laughs> is he and a figure, figurehead or is he The answer more? is whatever he wanted it to be. So he cannot govern. He reigns. He does not rule. Um, and there is no set job. Um, he is the the head of the army and the head of the navy. And beyond that, it's however much he wants to get stuck in. And straight away, there's sort of this this surreal few weeks where they're waiting for things to get started. And there's some naval stuff happening, but the the expeditionary force hasn't even left yet. Thinking like, what do I do? Um, it becomes easier and it becomes more obvious as as the first battles happen. So you can go and visit the wounded. You can go and he made it his his business to try and visit every division before they shipped out. And it became a thing in the army. Like first you get your uniform, then you get trained, then you get a visit from the king and then you go to France. Um, but it was very much, you can see the development. So 14 and 15 are very haphazard and he's just flinging himself into any role, um, ad hoc work, anything he can think of. And then as the war expands and his portfolio of work expands, it has to become more organised. So rather than daily receiving one or two people to give them medals, there becomes um, two investitures every week on Wednesday and Saturday. And anyone who wants to come to them, that's fine. And it doesn't matter how few or how many they are, but those are the days he does it because he's just not getting stuff done. So actually it becomes a lot more efficient. And then in 1917, you get the idea that he's been doing all of this work and people aren't really hearing about it. And, And they've got the idea. They've got the idea that the king is working hard and they've read stories and they've read about encounters with people, but there's no public relations um, and and the big deal sort of from mid-16 onwards is um, letting the press in more and that steadily they're letting more and more as the war goes on until he's got like 18 American journalists sitting in his study at Sandringham which is unheard of so he was prepared to do all of that for the war effort Um, but that's that's how his his, sort of an organic role that grows as the war goes on and he he took um, interest in in singular one-off events like um, the death of Captain Fryer or Edith Cavell. And then he took 
um, he was obsessed the war throughout with prisoners of war, not only ours, but theirs over here and were they being treated properly and could there be any repercussions because we weren't treating the Germans well enough and did they have everything they need and chasing down um, treatment of our prisoners of war abroad as well. So there there were certain things he gravitated towards like labour and industrial unrest um, and prisoners, but there's sort of nothing that gets away from him. I mean, he writes a letter to the the man who sweeps the crossing outside East Croydon Station because he's heard that he has, I think, he's got like a dozen relatives serving and he writes him a letter of appreciation or, or signs a letter of appreciation. So he really did try not to let anything get past him. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. One of the things that I find quite interesting when we think about the monarchy and we think about the First World War is that on the brink of the war, we've got these, we've got King George, we've got Kaiser Wilhelm, and we've got Tsar Nicholas of Russia, and they're all related. They're, they're cousins. It just, it's, it's just so, so interesting to me. How would you compare the the three cousins? I think Wilhelm's or he he thinks he's the best. He's the most experienced. He's been on the throne since 1888 and he considers himself the preeminent crowned head in Europe. Unfortunately, he's also a little bit bonkers in that he um he I don't know if he actually believes his own press or if he just can't help but big himself up like that but everything that he's been this bombastic nature and promising his people greatness and even dabbling with divine right and things like that he never lived up to it and by the first world war his people are kind of tired of him um the tired of the the gas basically and similarly in russia as well so um in russia by the onset of world war one there is an element of of constitution um constitutional monarchy um, it's been a really rocky path to get to it, um, but Nicholas II has started to work with with politicians. I think the war was a reprieve for those two, most definitely, because um, and it was a reprieve for Asquith as well. So the, all three of those are on the brink of disaster um, in July 1914, and it's sort of suddenly their countries are united next to them. Um, George isn't George isn't in anything like that situation um but he's not he's not totally confident about the the strength of the throne it's something that really worries him um is like the spread of revolution um and if it happens in one country will it spread here um and in 1917 in particular he uh when you look back on it it never was that serious and the revolutionary element never was was as close to kicking off as they thought it might be, but at the time you can understand. So the Russian monarchy has gone, Europe's in turmoil, the whole world is caving in on itself. And and how do you know that your people aren't going to just 
pick up a red flag and do exactly the same. So I think George is in a more comfortable position than his cousins on the outbreak of war. I think the other two, um, they did get a reprieve with their countries united, like with them um, to try and win the war. But um, I said that I, I just think Nicholas and Wilhelm are completely the wrong men in the wrong place at the wrong time. If Nicholas II just had to do what George V did and be a constitutional monarch, he's a nice man, he was a good man and he loved his country, but he was a rubbish autocrat. Um, so I think they're unfortunate in, in that um, they're not cut out for the position that they find themselves in. So was, by that logic, sorry, <laughs> was George in the right place at the right time or how much can be attributed to him as a person and and just the position he was at? he found himself compared to compared to his cousins i think so in about 1911 and 1912 he and the queen had already started getting out there they'd been down mines um they'd been out and they'd uh, and the queen loved that they went out to Keir hardy's constituency and that they got a really good welcome in wales with the miners and they had already started to to level the playing field between the monarchy and the people to get out there and meet people i think the the war rapidly accelerated um, it, but he he undoubtedly was in the right place in the right time. And like I said, so Edward the Seventh was was a lot shinier as a monarch. But you didn't need that in World War One. You just needed a hard worker who was a decent person and who was willing to share in what everybody else was going through, and just work themselves half to death, which is what he did. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, so you said at the very start that pe- people don't know a lot about George V generally, but one of the things that some people might know is that towards the end of the war, after Nicholas was overthrown and exi- exiled, Britain offered him asylum and George V later withdrew the offer. Yeah. Um, so some people have said that he abandoned his cousin mm-hmm. Um Is that fair? No. He doesn't have the power to withdraw an asylum offer. And though he pressed and pressed the government to do so, they refused. So what happened was in the days following um, Nicholas II's abdication, the government kind of, they, they ran away with themselves and offered him asylum without really thinking it through. They kind of reacted like a relative would. Whereas, and, and so did the king. He sent a telegram, which he got shouted at for doing because it just said, I hope you're okay and I'll do all I can for you. And But the, the overriding factor is whoever is in charge in Russia, you need them to be in the war with you because at the time, I mean, this did happen later on and we almost lost the war because of it. But if, if Russia drop out and Germany bring all of their divisions from that front over to the Western front, they could feasibly destroy the British, the French and the Belgian forces. So you absolutely have to get Russia in the war, stay in the war with you, no matter who's taken over. If you offer asylum to the guy they've just deposed, are they going to want to do that? Is it worth risking? And I think there's um, there's a big difference between George V speaking out against the asylum, which he did, and he was effectively told to sit down and shut up in a in a diplomatic way by Arthur Balfour, who I think was at the Foreign Office by that point. He was told, it's not your decision to make and the offer's been made, so suck it up. Um, and it was only then that the Russians didn't answer the offer. So arguably the only window where they could have got him out before elements in their own country um, kicked up a fuss about it and got him out to safety, those days 
they did nothing. They didn't answer. They didn't attempt to get him over here. And also as well, you have to factor him in, in that he was refusing to leave his family. So in that window, his children will have measles and he was adamant he wasn't going to leave them behind. So short of dragging him by his beard out of the country, he didn't want to go at that point. And then by the time, then nothing else happens and it floats for a few more days. And that's when the king has another letter sent to the government, which says, look, they've not answered. And I'm going to say again, I think this is a really bad idea. I think we need to think about the longer term. We need to think about making sure, I mean, Russia was a really good ally. She she did our bidding. We gave her money, we gave her munitions. And in return, um, she she was quite pliable as an ally. And you can't risk that. You can't risk throwing all of that away. And actually, for your cousin, as harsh as it sounds. And I think there's a big difference between him not wanting to have him live in this country and not wanting to help him. He never stopped trying to help him. Um, but I looked at the two previous visits of Nicholas II to England, which happened in 1909, and there was one earlier. And the chaos that was caused in the press um, with people speaking out about having an autocrat in the country, about not wanting him here. Um, there were some violent diatribes in the press against the king, against Edward VII for having him here. Um, and that was for a visit. So what's going to happen in the midst of a war when you're risking our, our ally relationship with our ally, um, when you don't know that we're going to win the war, you haven't got that that high, you haven't got the hindsight to look back and go, no, that everything was okay. You don't know that your own throne is safe. Mm-hmm. He just had to say, I don't think it's a very good idea. But he didn't ever stop trying to help him. Yeah. He just couldn't have him here. And I think that was a decision that the government should have made. Lloyd George should have said that in the first place. It was like they got cross. Lloyd, jo- Lloyd George was reacting like a relative, whereas the king was acting like a politician. And actually, you, you would have expected it to be the other way around. But it's probably the hardest decision, one of the hardest decisions he ever had to make as king, um, not to help his cousin. And he didn't make it lightly. And he didn't ever, he didn't ever forget that he, he could have done something more. But by no means should he have... He he didn't have the power to actually cut the asylum offer. He didn't. He was told, mind your own business, by the government. And it was only after a few more days of pressing that eventually something like 14 days after they, the, the window was open that Balfour finally sent a letter that said, I think the king's right, or I, I'm paraphrasing, but it, I think this is a bad idea and I think we need to start looking at other locations. And, and that included us trying to help him get to the south of France or anywhere that he wanted to go. Um, but yeah, there, there was no sort of just, he's dead to me, I'm not interested at all. But it was the government and that withdrew the actual offer. Mm-hmm. It's not as cold as he's just abandoned his cousin. No, and then you have the whole thing with the government as well, that um, the government have made the offer, um, but then they can't let that get out. It has to be, it has to come, the Russians are being are being told, you have to say it like you asked us and we said yes and things. So it's, it's a mess and it's because people react quickly and without thinking things through. Um, and just I think out of all all the accounts I've read and all the people I've whose uh, whose contribution I've looked at, the king was thinking about it most professionally, which I know some people find hard to deal with because it was his cousin. 
but he has his own throne to think about as well. There's an element of self-interest in that. So I, I feel sorry for him for the decision he had to make because he did love his cousin, but he absolutely made the right decision for his country. And his relationship with his other cousin, so the Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean... Kaiser Wilhelm, he came to symbolise the horrors of war for the people in Britain in, mm. in some respects, part, partly to do with propaganda. Um, I mean, how much did it bother people at the time that the king was directly related to the Kaiser, a German? There are slurs. There are lots of slurs. I, there's, there's a brilliant thing about how the uh, British royal family is basically just a breeding ground for Germans. Um, and I think someone referred to him as German once, a German, uh, and German enemy alien. Um, and I can't remember, he's this indignant response that he uh, gave to it. But um, by the end of the war, he's bitterly, bitterly criticising his cousin for having... In, in his words, put Europe through this. Um, there's an entry in his diary when Wilhelm abdicates, which is just like, deserves everything that's coming to him. That said, he absolutely was too much of a gentleman to rub his face in it. There was a question of um, him going out personally um, to take the surrender of the German fleet, and he said no. He said they've been defeated, they've lost the war, we don't need to do that it'd be fine to just, just just do it the way you've planned with the admirals and stuff. I don't need to go and rub their face in it. And then there's the question of trying Wilhelm after the war as a war criminal in London, which is ludicrous, um, which was to get... They wanted the Dutch to hand over the Kaiser and he was going to be dragged through a public dragged through public streets and, and put under trial in London, so on George V's doorstep. George V wasn't told about this. I think he read about it in a newspaper, as is what happened a lot of the time with Lloyd George not keeping him informed on things. Lloyd George wanted the Kaiser dead. Or not he his attitude was if this trial gave him a death sentence, I have no problem with that. And it's actually um it's actually Churchill, who's the measured one for once, who actually says, hang on a minute, you've got to think about this properly. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, and the king was furious. He was absolutely furious. There was even this sort of medie medieval idea of sailing him up to Hampton Court on the Thames every day for trial. Um, and ultimately, the Dutch refused to hand him over, which they just did Europe a complete favour because they said, and the way they worded it, and it was so smart, they said, you went to war for Belgium, you went to war for a smaller nation being bullied by bigger nations. Is that not what you're trying to do to us now? Our laws say he has asylum here um, and we're not giving him up which was just a godsend for everybody involved. Although it was interesting, I found cabinet papers from 39 and 40 because he dies in about 41, 42. And uh, had, during World War II, had it been necessary, everything had been approved to give him asylum here. So the temperature cooled. And that's, I think, what uh, Clemenceau, the French politician, says about halfway through, look, people all got really carried away with this, but I actually think if it just cools off, people's bloodlust will kind of wane and it will be enough that he's lost everything and he's he's living over there and people will come to accept it. But there was like an outcry, there was a lot of violence and as I say, Lloyd George was one of the ones that, that was not going to lose any sleep if any tribunal sort of gave him a death sentence or ordered him hung for being a war criminal. You open your book with the scene of... George's death yeah. and the reaction around the world. And it's just, it, it, he, he, you, just, you describe him as um, a king of 
a very popular king. I mean, the reaction of his death, there's mass popularity. I mean, was this, how much of this was because of his role during the war? It's the key thing the key in thing? his reign. And by, uh, he he had his silver jubilee in um, 35 and it reduced him to tears to see the accolades and to see the affection that by that point he was a father figure. Um, but certainly when in all of the obituaries, and I quoted quite a few of them, the one thing that they're talking about that they remembered him for was being that figurehead in the war and for being front and centre for the whole war effort. Okay, so the big statement at the heart of your book is that the Great War was the making of King George V and the House of Windsor, which we've covered already. Um, what were the far-reaching impact? What was the far-reaching impact of George's actions during the war? Like, what's his legacy? His legacy is all of the footage you see of the royal family getting out there and shaking people's hands and kissing babies and meeting people and and taking an interest in people. Um, it wasn't new in the reign in the reign of George V, but on that scale and that dedication. It was. Um, it's also more significant from his reign because you had the the advent of moving pictures and you had footage of him doing this stuff and you had the popular press. Um, also, his legacy in the name alone. He picked the name Windsor in 1917. You were asking about uh, how he felt about being called German. He felt strongly enough to change his name. Um, he... <sighs> So his work ethic, I think I see so much of what he did in World War One, And I, I grew up sort of seeing lots of pictures um, of World War Two and George VI and everything that he done. And now I look at it and I, I say, oh, that he, everything he's doing, he's he's just taken his father's example from World War One. It's like, well, the, it's, the role was made in World War One of a wartime king and George VI did it really well. Um, but I think the blueprint was already there. And then you look at the the working days that the Queen still does and, and how the Duke of Edinburgh has just retired after 70 years of work, um, of being a working royal. And the example was set on this scale by George V. Um, the 20th century completely changed, the beginning of the 20th century completely changed the world. And instead of getting left behind, the royal family went with it and found a new role, and he did that. So I think everything that they do has his legacy in it, and yet everyone kind of doesn't really think about him, which is why I wanted to start the book with his death, to say that, I mean, for for us, the parallels will be, I remember when the Queen Mother died and the queue just went on forever to go and see her lying in state and everybody wanted to go through and they didn't care how long they waited or what the weather was like and everybody lined the street when she... I mean, London came to a standstill when her funeral procession happened and that was what it was. So if 800,000 Londoners in 1936 came out, to or Londoners and people coming in from however far afield they wanted to, so 800,000... Um, filed past his coffin, and that's that's nothing small. So if you think about and think about the affection when Diana died, and think about the affection when the Queen Mother died, and his was comparable to both of those, which I don't think anyone would assume who who just had a passing knowledge of him. Just before we we finish up, what are three things that you found whilst writing your your biography of George? that are perhaps surprising. It doesn't matter if they're big or small things, if they're, you know, innocuous. Just three things. 
Queen Mary was the boss, absolutely, and 100%. Um, and he was fine with that. He got told off frequently. Um, and he was quite happy to just go with whatever she wanted uh, in terms of, like, decisions on the children. And uh, he made a, a snippy comment at the dinner table about the fact that so she she drove forward all of these economy measures in the war. And um, one of them was to cut the laundry bill, um, was that no, it, you didn't get a fresh napkin at every meal anymore. You got um, the same one given back to you throughout the day, and he heard he heard she heard him grumble about it down the other end of the table, and just sort of bellowed down the table. You might help me more with my economising measures, and he was completely put in his place. Um, he was a gossip. He loved gossip, and he loved practical jokes um, in his own circle and with the family. Um, so. And even the children weren't afraid to play. They did one practical joke on him where they gave him a, a spoon that when he stirred his tea, it just melted. It was a metal with a low alloy. So this whole thing about these terrified children who were petrified of their father, you, you, don't, you don't have food fights at the table if you think, uh, if you think he's that scary. Um, one more thing about him that really surprised me. I'm going to think of loads after we've yeah, finished Yeah, it's going to be one this. of those things. I'm claiming him as a Chelsea fan. <laughs> Why would that be? Because I find him at Stamford Bridge more than I find him at any other football grounds. There's an investor at Ibrox. There's one at St. James's Park. There's one at Whole City's Ground. He goes repeatedly back to Stamford Bridge. And I managed to get a photo of it in the book. So I'm claiming him as a Chelsea fan. Brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. That was Alexandra Churchill. In the Eye of the Storm, George V and the Great War is out now, published by Helion and Company. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Thursday to speak to the historian of the moment, Rutger Bregman. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.